Welcome back to Passions Over Pancakes. My name is Hannah. I am the creator and the host of this podcast, a passion project of mine in which we talk about people's passions while we eat pancakes. I am so grateful that you're here and super excited about today's passion. To keep up with the name of the podcast, today's pancakes are brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. They graciously sent me a few bags of their pancake mix and it is so yummy. Y'all, I've had to promise myself that I will only eat these pancakes on podcast days. Otherwise, I'd be eating them every single day. This is totally not sponsored. I'm just incredibly grateful that they sent them to me. Before we get into the podcast and while I have you here talking about housekeeping, I would greatly appreciate it if you would just take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Every thumbs up, review, or subscription makes this dream into more of a reality and it never goes unnoticed. With all the housekeeping out of the way, let's introduce our first guest. Kenan is a great friend of mine who has been there through the ups and the downs. We met back in 2018, I think, and we were housemates for about a year. I've always appreciated her zeal and her passion for theology, people, and for life. This is actually a two-part episode, which is the first two-part episode Passions Over Pancakes has ever had. In this first episode, we'll be talking about the danger of having a hospital birth, the absolute wonder that is natural childbirth, and the history of obstetrics. You are not going to want to miss out on this, and you may need a notepad to jot down notes of the history. One last thing before we get started. This can be a tricky subject for some people. Please keep in mind during this episode that if natural childbirth isn't your thing, if you've had a traumatic birth in a hospital or in a birth center, or if you're feeling defensive over the history of obstetrics, please know that this is not meant to be an attacking episode on doctors, hospitals, or those who have had hospital births. Nobody is less of a mother or a doctor because of where they choose or have chosen to have birth or where they choose or have chosen to work. Okay, with all that being said, let's get right into it. Kenan, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you for being here. And I'm really excited to talk to you today and learn just a ton about what you have to say. Thank you. I am so excited. I've been uh, prepping and learning all of my, uh, or trying to get all of my things together um, to try to put it all succinctly for you. Um, (laughs) I'm kind of a soapbox stander. So um, yeah, I've been really excited. So thank you for having me absolutely I'm I'm seriously so pumped I have been thinking about this all week (laughs) I'm just so ready to learn and this is something that I'm very interested in learning about as somebody who works in a hospital and also eventually you know wants to have little kiddos running around your story has just been so inspiring with you having an unmedicated birth and your just stories about hospitals and the the um, history behind them when we've talked about them has just been so interesting so why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit about who you are um, what your story is with birth and unmedicated birth and how you kind of got into this side of like the crunchy mom type of thing yeah yeah for sure Um, I have never been crunchy uh, except for now Um, and I'm really not crunchy in a lot of other aspects of my life like I drink soda I drink sweet tea I eat fast food like I don't know that anybody would call me crunchy except for this. And I kind of got into it um, for real when I got pregnant with my son Knox, but I always had kind of an interest in natural childbirth. I don't know if it's my competitive nature. It's like, oh yeah, natural, like I can do that. Let me show people that I can do that. Um, Or (laughs) what my inclination towards it was. But I remember even from a younger age being kind of fascinated with natural childbirth and being kind of turned off to the hospital setting. Um, I remember seeing it displayed in media 
as far as like movies and TV shows go as like this woman screaming as they rushed her down the hall and everybody's panicking and it's like this really scary thing. And I have friends who have always been terrified of childbirth because that's all they've ever seen of it. And I never had an experience with natural childbirth. Like my mom didn't have it. She was in a hospital. I never had any friends before I gave birth naturally who had given birth naturally. So yeah, I, I just always had an inclination towards it. And then when I got pregnant with Knox, um, started looking more deeply into it because it was a reality for me now. So what was the kind of linchpin point in deciding to go the natural route instead of the hospital route for you personally? I think it's um, just a desire to return to square one initially. I think my like biblical worldview has a a reason for wanting to do that to return to what was but more than that is the united states has a horrific record of statistics as far as childbirth goes the united states is like leading the world in maternal and infant mortality rates and we are the most scientifically improved country in the world and so there's there's a, a discrepancy there so yeah i think that that was the linchpin was women are dying in hospitals babies are dying in hospitals things are going really really wrong there do we really need that or can i trust my body and trust that it knows what to do and can i be taken care of by someone who also believes that which is a midwife um in most cases so let's get right into that then because that that is a juicy topic yes a a hot bomb (laughs) absolutely which i'm really interested to get into um for the listeners that don't know i personally work in a hospital i've never worked in the ob side of things but eventually in my classes i am gonna have to work in that so i'm super interested to hear kenan's point of view on this and also um continue kind of diving deeper and then also seeing it for myself, you know, um, I've had friends that go in the hospital and have experienced some not so great things with the OB side of things. And so I'm, I'm super interested to learn kind of about the history and all that stuff. So I hope you guys are too. Um, so yeah, let's get into this super, super meaty topic. I'm really excited about this part and I don't even honestly know what to ask or how to ask it, but just kind of give me all you've got about hospitals in America, um, hospitals in general, how that is not great for women who are giving birth and how our system has really failed women. So I think first we have to look at the evidence of, is this really happening? Like uh, hospitals are the safest place to be, right? Like that's what we automatically think of as Americans, especially you're safe in a hospital, you're taken care of in a hospital. Um, But I've got some statistics here that are kind of evidence that that's not really true for everybody. Um, In the U.S., 700 mothers die every year during childbirth, 700. Um, And 50,000 are severely injured. And just to compare that, because, you know, any type of number like that, if you don't have anything to compare it to, it doesn't really make any sense. But in the U.S., so this is maternal deaths per 100,000, okay? So in 2018, 17 and a half per 100,000 mothers died during childbirth. Um, In 2019, it went up to 20. So it increased in the last couple of years. Um, The closest country 
to us is France at 8.7. Wow. So 20% in 2019 and 8%. That's crazy. Yeah. That's the closest developed country to us in maternal death rate. Um, The lowest maternal death rate on this chart that I have, uh, which is from uh, Statista, um, is Norway at 1.8 per 100,000. So the correlation there, because it might be, okay, well, if everybody's having babies in the hospital and, you know, these are the death rates, if, you know, all of these countries are having babies in the hospital and these are the death rates, then there's something wrong with the women, is what you would think, right? And American women have plenty of reasons to be worse at giving birth, right? We're more obese than a lot of other countries. We have poor diets, we have poor exercise rates, right? So that would make sense, but that's not the case. Um, Norway, what we just looked at, 1.8 per 100,000 deaths. Per 1,000 live births, uh, 53% of them were attended by midwives and 12% were attended by obese. Interesting. So vastly more uh, were attended by midwives in birth centers or at home than were delivered in the hospital. And they have an extremely low maternal mortality rate. Australia, which has a 4.8 per 100,000 death rate, uh, 68% of births take place in homes or birth centers. Only 7% are attended by obese. But there really is a correlation that countries that have more OBs attending births have higher maternal mortality rates. So it's not safer for women in that sense. Um, So we have to look at why. And people don't want to talk about it because hospitals are like this safe, like sacred place in our society, right? So people don't want to talk about dangers like that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so interesting because for so long, I think all of us have thought hospitals are the safest place. And I don't know if it's something with 2020 or what, but I think all of us are starting to realize now that, hey, maybe hospitals aren't the safest place in the world. And also maybe people don't have our backs the way that they should in healthcare. So it's it's interesting, all these different aspects of healthcare coming out with people not trusting them as much and especially in the OB world too. Um, So I'll I'll link everything that Kenan is saying in the show notes with um, evidence and all that stuff. If you want to look into it more and absolutely encouraging you to do research on your own as well. Let's get into the woman going into a hospital for birth or kind of just the whole process. If there, if you have um, something to say about kind of the whole nine months leading up to birth um, going in with an OB, what is the problem there with OBs and um, surgeons really who are taking care of you in your birth? So you asked one question and then you asked, what's the problem with OBs? Um, And I think answering that one will be helpful moving forward. So I'm going to answer that one first. Um, Yeah, go for it. So looking at the history of obstetrics in the United States is where we get a lot of these red flags coming up. The United States has a really, really dirty past as far as birth goes. And I have some notes. I'm going to be looking at my notes over here as far as timelines go. Um, So midwives predate doctors, predate obstetricians. I think everybody knows that, or at least should know that. We have documents of midwives attending births for thousands and thousands of years. Midwives are mentioned in the Bible, in Exodus specifically, and midwives were just always the ones who attended your birth. 
1716 was when New York City licensed its first midwife. So midwives are, are predating obstetrics in this time period. Um, and then in the 1800s is when we start getting all of these new medical interventions like forceps, opium, new interventions as far as just the medical training side of things goes. And then in 1812, after the war, is when medical schools really started cropping up all over the United States. And so medical schools really attracted wealthier white men. And the, the training for medical facilities went up like crazy. In 1880 was when we really found a connection between microbes and infection and fever. So that's when the American public started understanding that things needed to be sterile and clean in order to avoid infection. So these hospitals started becoming these shiny, clean places um, and and as well as a status symbol, a symbol of wealth really, that these were the clean places that you wanted to go. And in the early 1900s as well, um, in the American South, especially obstetricians, excuse me, kind of went on a smear campaign of midwives. Um, Especially in the South, a lot of midwives were black and uh, they went on smear campaigns. Uh, They would put in the papers a picture of a black granny midwife in a dirty home and say, do you really want someone like this to be giving birth to your baby? Or would you rather go to the shiny, clean, new hospital and have a smart white man deliver your baby. They'll be much better taken care of there. And so that's kind of how it started in the early, early 1900s. Only one to 5% of births took place in hospitals. All other births took place at home. Um, And before the 1900s, it's estimated that about 95% of births, both the mother and the baby lived. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, some of these studies are some of the uh, records are hard to look at because a lot of them um, include infant mortality up to a year, and so there, the infant mortality rate was higher um, because of you know we just weren't as progressed as far as medicine goes, um, and so a lot of those records include up to a year. Um, but if you look at certain parts of those studies, the initial childbirth, 95% of mom and baby lived through childbirth. And we are nowhere near that right now. Nowhere near that. Um, and so something was going right in the 1800s that is not going right right now. So I think that that's a big red flag. So throughout the early 1900s, hospital births are starting to rise you have scopolamine introduced in hospitals in like 1914. Um, And this is the period in American birth history called twilight sleep. And it's a really dark time. Basically scopolamine was used for childbirth and women thought that it took away pain. Scopolamine doesn't actually take away pain. It just takes away your memory of the event but it also takes away self-control. So these women were going into maternity wards, going to have their baby being given scopolamine, 
and they were attacking doctors, trying to climb the walls, spitting in people's faces because they had no self-control because of this drug. So they had to find a way to bind them, strap them down. So they would strap them down with lamb's wool. If they used anything else, they would have cuts and bruises on their arms. Husbands couldn't go back. Husbands were like waiting at home to get a call from the doctor that, okay, your wife has had a baby, you can come pick them up now. And so these women would be strapped down to beds in maternity wards, sometimes for days. The care was horrible. They would be left in their own fluids and they were just left to give birth. And that was twilight sleep, which continued up until like the 1960s. Wow. Yikes. Yeah. Really dark time in American birth history. Yeah. Let's see. Moving on from there. This is interesting. Um, 1939, 55% of white babies were born in hospitals and only 27% of non-white babies were born in hospitals. So far more white babies were born in hospitals than uh, non-white babies. Um, It really was a status symbol to give birth in a hospital, which is not great. And what, what was that year again? Um, in 1939. Wow. Okay. So not too yeah. long ago. No, no. This is all 1900s and after, which, That's is, crazy. which is crazy. And then just a, a few notes. Um, in the 1930s, um, they were giving x-rays to every woman that was pregnant to measure the size of her pelvis. Well, then late 1930s, they realized that it was causing babies to have cancer. So then they stopped doing x-rays. In the 50s and 60s, they were giving women thalidomide for nausea and morning sickness. Well, then they realized that babies were being born without arms and legs. And then they finally identified it as thalidomide was the cause of that. So then they stopped giving thalidomide. In the 90s, the 1990s, they were using Cytotec to induce labor in women who had previously had a C-section. Well, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ruptured uteruses and dead babies later, they realized in 1999 that Cytotec was the cause of it. So obstetrics just has a really dark history of not carefully practicing and studying long-term effects of interventions, using them, seeing, you know, oh, some of them are working, some of them aren't. And then years later, finding really horrific long-term effects and then stopping it. There are not a ton of trials on Pitocin and FDA, the FDA has approved Pitocin for the induction of labors in medical necessity, but not Mm -hmm. for elective induction. So like, Mm -hmm. 80% of the use of Pitocin is done off-label without FDA approval. Interesting. Huh. And I wonder how many of those births are truly, you know, medical emergencies that they are using Pitocin for. And I don't, and I'll say this now, it is a miracle that medicine has progressed to the time that we have obstetricians and surgery and all of the interventions that we have in medical emergencies. I never want to think anyone to think that I'm saying do away with obstetricians. We don't need them. I'm not. Um, What I am saying is in the vast majority of all pregnancies and childbirths, um, 
women are low risk and they don't need obstetricians. They don't need all of these interventions, which we'll get into the snowball of interventions later. But it's induction is very rarely needed. I have a lot of friends and this is just anecdotal. This isn't um, statistical evidence, but I have a lot of friends who, you know, they'll tell me about their experience giving birth and they'll say, oh yeah, I had to be induced. And I'll ask why. And they'll give reasons like, oh, like my labor wasn't progressing or, um, you know, baby was getting stuck. He wasn't coming fast enough or these reasons that as I have looked into it are not reasons to induce at all. But these women were told by their obstetrician, this is what we need to do. We need to do this to save your baby. Um, and so they think that they went to, you know, have more Pitocin or even as far as an emergency C-section when I know that they didn't really need it based on what they're telling me. Again, I'm not a medical doctor. I don't have a scope on that. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's really sad. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting too, just the, how far we have come in medicine and even hearing about the past of obstetrics and how many awful things have happened that we don't know about now. It's so important to look at the history of really anything of, of the theology that you have, the, the church that you're going to the, even down to obstetrics. Um, it's just so interesting hearing the history. And I remember last year in May, um, when you were talking about this, I think it was after my bridal shower, there were a bunch of us in the room and you were talking about this. And my mom afterwards was just saying, I wish I had known this type of stuff beforehand before I had my kids, because I would have done things a lot differently, but there was no way to know. And, and I didn't know this and she didn't know this until last year in May when you were talking about it. And then after doing a little bit more research into it, her and I, it's just so wild. The things that have gone on and the things that people have really gotten away with in medicine um, that's supposed to be for the best of the mother and baby, but clearly has, has done a lot more damage than good in a lot of cases. Yeah. And I just want to add to what Kenan said as well. This, this whole thing is a learning process and it's really up to the individual that the mom to do her research and to learn about this kind of stuff, to be able to do what is best for herself and the baby ultimately. And yeah, just, just knowing that a lot of people who are probably listening to this podcast, um, have gone to hospitals for births. I mean, it's, it's something that if you didn't know about, you didn't know about, you know, it's never talked about, but, but doing the work of learning is just so fascinating and also liberating in a way, knowing that there is a different way to do birth in America. But if you have done birth in a hospital, that doesn't make you any less. Right. Yeah. my, my My big problem with it is women, um, don't know not everybody knows mm-hmm. that the hospital is not super safe for you. Um, yeah. And doctors are no good at telling women exactly what's happening. Um, if you look at uh, episiotomies, especially before like 2010, women were not asked if they wanted an episiotomy or asked to consent if they wanted an episiotomy. Some doctors right. would can I do this episiotomy? We really need to do this for X, Y, and Z. But I know plenty of women who have had episiotomies who did not consent to it. And for those who don't know, an episiotomy is a manual separation of the tissues on the perineum that can be a lot harder to heal. It's done 
to prevent tearing you might not have even torn in the first place so it but again it's just something that's happening to your body that you haven't consented to and that's my big problem with anything you know informed consent is so important in any aspect of life and women are not given informed they're not they don't have the ability to be informed and to consent to the things that are happening um because doctors a lot of times don't tell them and it's presented in a way that's kind of pulling the your baby's in danger card when that m may not actually be the case and what first time mom or second time mom or third time mom is going to be presented with evidence or not evidence but a, an opinion from a doctor and say if we don't do this something really bad could happen to your baby okay fine do it i i don't want anything bad to happen to my baby you're the doctor you know best you know right the yeah. um something i was going to mention in the as far as the history goes the the father of modern obstetrics, Dr. DeLee, he's been quoted as saying that childbirth is like a horrendous thing that happens to women and women should be as far removed from it as possible and that midwives should be as far removed from it as possible. So as much as I'm not a feminist and that's a different soapbox to stand on, childbirth is a feminine thing mm -hmm. done by women for women, right? And uh, many, many, all of the early obstetricians were men and they had really horrible ideas about women, that women weren't strong enough. Women needed to be rescued from childbirth, which is, that just makes my blood boil, um, especially having an unmedicated childbirth. And, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But women have been sold this false bill of goods that they are not strong enough they're not capable and that they are in danger when they're having a baby and that they need to be right. rescued from it and that science and intervention is the only way to rescue them from it and they don't really need to do the process they can just you know have a surgery and snip snap done and you're rescued from it you know yeah which is wild to think that somebody who's made his entire career in obstetrics is saying that that's wild yeah. My goodness. Okay. So you had mentioned about C-sections and having this type of procedure and you can meet your baby right after that. Tell me more about the process of being in the hospital with OBs being surgeons. How does that kind of correlate with everything going on with women and the death rate and infection rate and all of that? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So um, what happens in the hospital first off hospitals are, are for profit i think everybody knows that by now <clears throat> they function um for profit and it makes no sense to go in to a hospital and to have them let you labor for 24 40 hours which are really common times especially for first-time moms for their labor nobody likes to talk about that but that's totally common um no one no hospital wants you in a bed for 40 hours that doesn't make financial sense and so what happens is what's called the snowball of intervention this is all based on um what's called the freedman's curve which was developed in the 50s 50s or 60s uh, by a doctor named Friedman and uh, he took a very small sample size of women and measured their approximate time of dilation uh, so how long it took them to get from one to four centimeters dilated from four to 
eight centimeters dilated and then eight to 10, which is usually how the stages of labor kind of are separated. A lot of them weren't first time moms, so they had had children before. And this, it was a very small study group. So this is not like your gold standard pinnacle of studies, double blind placebo type studies. It was a very small study size. And the study was more observational than anything. But it said that the average time for a woman's labor is like seven to nine hours. How many first time moms do you know that had a seven to nine first labor? Not very many. Right. Not many. Not many. Yeah. The vast majority of them are over 12 hours, if not into the 20s, sometimes 30s and 40s. Um, so what happens when you go into the hospital is say you're three to four centimeters dilated. Well, from that point, you've, you've got a long ways to go. Um, so you go into the hospital, you, you know, you're doing your thing. Uh, you get put on monitors. The nurse comes in an hour later, checks you again. You're still at four centimeters. You haven't dilated any more. Well, that's not good. We need to move this along. So they start you on Pitocin, um, which may it's synthetic oxytocin. It makes your contractions harder, like stronger. Um, and last for longer. There's also a really weird chemical switch that happens when you have Pitocin. Uh, oxytocin, which is what your body produces during natural labor, prepares your mind and your body for contractions. So it's like a cocktail of hormones that happens that literally enables your body to endure the pain of a contraction. Well, when you have Pitocin, uh, you don't have the regular oxytocin. Your brain doesn't make that. It already thinks that it made that oxytocin. So the contractions hurt more. They last for longer. Um, and so most women need an epidural when they have Pitocin. Well, any, anyone in the birth sphere talks about Pitocin contractions. Everybody in a consensus is like, those are awful, horrible. You don't want to do them. So you have an epidural. Well, what happens with the epidural is it kind of slows everything down. You're intentionally paralyzing part of your body. So things mm -hmm. start slowing down. Also, once you have an epidural, you can't move around. You're stuck in a bed. Uh, and right. movement is one of the biggest key factors as far as progressing in labor goes. Okay, so what happens when you have Pitocin, you have these really strong, intense contractions, you have an epidural uh, that you can't move around, so your body's not progressing as much. That goes on for three, four hours. You're maybe progressing a little bit. Um, you up the pit one more time, but then baby's heart rate isn't responding well to the Pitocin. The contractions from Pitocin are way longer, way stronger. Baby's not really ready to handle them, especially that early in labor. And so baby's heart rate starts uh, skyrocketing or plummeting. Um, either can happen. Uh, once that happens, they're like, oh, okay, baby's not responding well. We need to pull back the Pitocin. So you kind of like take a break from it for a little bit. Then once baby stabilizes, more Pitocin. Okay, so you, now you're on more Pitocin, more Pitocin. Baby doesn't respond well again, so you draw it back. While this cycle goes on for, you know, three or four times, by the time that you get to this fourth round of increasing your Pitocin, baby's heart rate has either skyrocketed or plummeted and won't stabilize. And then at this point, baby's not recovering. So you move to an emergency C-section within like three to four minutes 
and and you had an emergency c-section um and the doctor says thank god that we were here and we had the tools to do an emergency c-section or we would have lost your baby well you wouldn't have lost the baby if none of these interventions had taken place all of these things piled on top of each other caused Mm -hmm. an issue that wasn't there to begin with um Mm -hmm. and so that kind of goes into your second question as far as OBs being surgeons. That's what they are. They are trained surgeons. Um, one thing that's really important to ask your obstetrician, if you are a mother um, and you're interviewing hospitals trying to decide where you're going to give birth and you want to be in a hospital, ask your OB how many natural births he has witnessed or she has witnessed. How many physiologically normal births has he attended? If he says not many, or if she says not many, that is not a good sign. Mm-hmm. This is one of my favorite quotes around uh, kind of the, the birth, you know, world. Um, but birth is not a medical event. It's not. It is a natural physiological event that sometimes needs medical intervention. And I think that that's, that's key Um, We've been trained as a society with 95% of births happening in hospitals, sometimes as high as 98%. We've been trained to think that birth is a medical event that needs to be attended by a surgeon. And that's just not the case. So uh, when when things are medically necessary for uh, a C-section, thank God that we have obstetricians that can do a c-section and a c-section is really the only things that a midwife can't do that an obstetrician can everywhere else in the world obstetricians attend high risk and c-section likely births everywhere in the world except for the united states where ob's attend 95 to 98 percent of low risk births that makes no sense it scientifically does not make sense that's very yeah. interesting. And I don't know why it, it hits different just saying that OBs attend low risk births when in reality, OBs should be there for high risk births just yeah. in case something goes wrong. But even then, still doing it with your midwife. Yeah, there there are things um, that absolutely require a C-section. I am not deaf or blind to that fact. Um, even things like, you know, cord prolapse. There are cases where midwives have been able to deliver a baby vaginally that has had a cord prolapse, but in the majority of cord prolapses, it is best to get that baby into a C-section, to get mom into a Mm C-section and go ahead and get out the baby. But there are things like failure to progress or shoulder dystocia, um, which we'll kind of talk about um, when we get into like crunchy childbirth. Um, Shoulder Mm -hmm. dystocia actually is not very common. It is very, very rare. But a doctor will use shoulder dystocia as a reason to go in for an emergency C-section. Imagine you're laying on a bed and you are pushing for hours because you can't feel anything. You have an epidural, so you can't can't feel anything. Um, They're telling you to push. You're at 10 centimeters, but remember, once you're at 10 centimeters dilated, you still have the birth canal for the baby to move down. So just because you're 10 centimeters dilated does not mean you're ready to push. But once the doctor checks you and you're 10 centimeters, okay, you're ready to push. So they'll watch the monitor and when you're contracting, they'll tell you to push. That's why women push for three to four hours at a time at a hospital. I pushed for 10 minutes. There is no need to push for three to four hours. Um, 
So you're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing, nothing's happening. Baby's stuck. Your pelvis is too small. Emergency C-section. That's interesting. That's something that I don't think I've thought of that. Yeah, you might be 10 centimeters dilated, but that doesn't mean you're ready. That's so interesting. I mean, think about the anatomy of the uterus and the birth canal. Um, Your cervix is at the top of your birth canal and the opening of the vagina is down here, right? So you have your birth canal right there. The cervix goes from 0% dilated up to 10 centimeters. Baby is right here sitting on top of your cervix all of that way to go. That's a long distance that baby has to move before you're ready. And now uh, there is some pushing that can take place that can help move baby down into the birth canal. Um, but you are not pushing an eight pound baby from the top of your cervix completely outside of your body very quickly. That's it, just not how that works. That's so interesting. All right, y'all. Hopefully you're enjoying this podcast just as much as I am. And hopefully you're learning a ton. I know I am. And I know that this has been such a growing opportunity for me. This break in the podcast is to announce something that is incredibly exciting that Kenan is doing. If you can't tell, Kenan is very gung-ho and passionate about everything that she does, from birth to baby clothes to theology, everything in between. Everything that she does in her life is fueled by passion. Kenan has always been someone to find solutions when there honestly don't seem to be any. If there aren't enough cute or affordable baby clothes in the world, she'll create her own. If there aren't Christian stickers that speak a bold message while being cute at the same time, she'll create her own. Her newest project is a children's book called The Little One's First Bible Stories and Catechism. It's an illustrated children's book to introduce children to Bible stories that actually sound like the Bible and to their first catechism. And catechism is just a fancy word for questions and answers. This is a wildly exciting project that I cannot wait for, and I hope you're interested in it as well. The Kickstarter launches this Monday, February 28th, and that's less than a week from when this podcast launches. The pre-publication and post-publication Kickstarter link will be in the show notes for those of you who want to check it out and learn more and possibly even consider helping her get this off the ground. You can read more about the project in the Kickstarter. Again, that link will be down below. With all that being said, let's get back to the show. So then... With all of this, with all of this in mind, with all the history, with all of the current status of OB and and birth and hospitals, why are women dying in hospitals and why are women dying during childbirth, after childbirth um, in these hospitals and after they get sent home? What is wrong with the hospitals, especially since we have assumingly come so far in medicine? What's what's wrong with hospitals? Yeah. Well, I think the evidence shows us that the more that we intervene in a natural process, the more damage we do. For sure. Um, I think that that has been the evidence looking at the history and looking at um, the current statistics. The more interventions you have that are unnecessary, the more damage that happens. Babies do not need to be put under anesthesia, which babies do get a percentage of your epidural when you have one. So babies are having a lot of issues waking up, being really drowsy after an epidural or a C-section when you have that type of anesthesia as well. Pitocin is a synthetic hormone 
that we're adding to women who don't need it. Again, all of this caveated with the fact that sometimes medical induction is necessary. Sometimes it is. Sometimes C-sections are necessary. I'm not negating that. I am talking sp only about low-risk mothers who have low-risk pregnancies are good candidates to give birth vaginally, naturally, unmedicated. I'm not talking about gestational diabetes. I'm not talking about preeclampsia. I'm not talking about cord prolapse. I'm not talking about any of those things. What happens when we start messing with natural processes? things go haywire. What happens when we mess with the natural hormone cocktail that our body produces and has produced for thousands of years to naturally birth our babies? Things go wrong. C-sections is a lot of times what happens. Um, in the United States, our C-section rate on average is between 30 and 40 percent. 30 to 40 wow. percent of births are C-sections. The World Health Organization recommends that the C-section rate be about 10. There are some hospitals in New York that are up to like 50% C-section rate. There are private hospitals in Brazil that are reaching 90% C-section rate. Wow. And C-sections are major abdominal surgery that is riddled with risks. Absolutely. And high blood pressure in pregnancy is is really, really dangerous and can and preeclampsia as well. I, I was telling Elisha some of the, the my husband some of the history of births and he automatically picked up on it. Huh. The more we stuck our hands in the cookie jar, the fewer cookies there are. The more we mess with stuff that's a natural process, the more we're gonna mess it up. Especially considering something like surgery, where every time you go into the hospital it increases um, your mortality rate, just yeah. every single time you go in, whether that's a birth, whether that's going in for pneumonia or what, what have you, but especially going into the operating room and having your entire midsection cut open and organs totally exposed and organs are being taken out to get to your baby. Yes, of course it is a, a sterile environment in that, that, um, room, but there's never a real guarantee. People who are working on you, the doctors are human. The nurses are human. Mistakes are bound to happen, whether it's fast food or medicine, you know, thing, things right. are going to happen because when you have people working, people make mistakes. And sometimes that can be like in fast food, you're, you're missing your fries. And in medicine, sometimes that can be something as terrible as death or infection yeah. for you or your baby. Yeah. And that's, that's a serious risk that it makes me wonder how many women um, truly do know what they're signing up for. And when they do sign those consent forms, if they truly do understand those risks and what that conversation is like between the mom and the doctor, that, that's just, I've, I've never been a part of that. So I'm not sure you know, what that conversation is like, but it makes me wonder how honest healthcare providers are with their, their moms. And on the flip side of that, um, it also makes me wonder just from a, a schooling standpoint, um, this doesn't have to do with birth, but I know that, that a lot of doctors don't get trained in nutrition. They don't talk about that with their patients because that's not something that they get trained on. And science has shown that a lot of our issues, especially in America with obesity, diabetes, um, hypertension, all of those things by and large can be fixed without medication, but simply by changing your diet. And that's something that a lot of doctors don't talk about and because they don't know. 
And so it makes me wonder on the flip side of that with OBs, if they truly do believe that this is best practice because this is what they were taught and they've never given a second thought to midwifery and crunchy types of things um, because they just don't know. It's not something that we're taught. Well, it's interesting that you say that um, because OBs are trained to see pathology. That's what they're trained to see. So they're going to see it even when it's not there or they have a Mm -hmm. higher proclivity to see it when it's not there. The, the World Health Organization has estimated that about 50% of all of the maternal deaths that have happened in the past 10 years were preventable, that they did not need to happen, um, that there was some measure of intervention that happened that could not have happened and saved the mother's life. That's horrendous. Absolutely. We have to, we have to change our thinking around birth that is not okay. Um, it's just not, um, and as far as risks with C-section goes, um, there's a risk of death. There is a risk of infection, but there's also severe risks and implications for your future births as well. The uterine rupture rate increases exponentially with each C-section that you have. Um, hospitals are finally coming around to the idea that a VBAC, a vaginal birth after cesarean is important and good, and you should try for a VBAC. Um, but that wasn't the case up until about 10 years ago. So if you once a C-section, always a C-section would be the, the phrase. Um, so you go in yeah. for a C-section, you have that scar, you heal, you go in for your second baby. Um, after, your first C- after your first C-section, your risk of uterine rupture is about 1%. After your second C-section goes up to about 6%. Interesting. After your third C-section, it's almost at 20%. So you really have to limit the size of your family. You're forced to limit that um, if you have C-sections because it is just flat out too dangerous to keep having C-sections. The the tissue is not strong enough to do that Mm -hmm. that many times. Um, And so your risk for uterine rupture increases exponentially with that, Um, which is really sad. Me and my husband want a lot of children. So if I had been in a hospital setting and an unnecessary snowball of interventions had been forced upon me and I'd been rushed to an emergency C-section, whereas I could have given birth naturally without intervention, but because I was in a hospital and it was forced upon me, forced upon me, and I'll, I'll say something about that in a second then now I have to limit the size of my family because I've had a c-section and it my uterine rupture rate increases um Mm -hmm. so it's it's really interesting you can look in at hospitals um I have nurse friends and doula friends um who have said that at the end of the month you can tell when hospitals haven't reached a quota of epidurals because they will push really hard for a woman to get an epidural. So I'm sure that, that you have a, um, an aspect on this, um, but anesthesiologists uh, make a lot of money mm-hmm. and hospitals reach a quota to ensure that they can pay the anesthesiologist out of that profit instead of other funds for the hospital, right? Um, so if you have enough epidurals, it reaches that quota, insurance has got the anesthesiologist salary covered, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I have doula friends that have said, you know, you can really tell when this hospital is, has not made their quota because they'll come in and ask a woman who does not want an epidural. Are you sure about that epidural? I can get the anesthesiologist in here. 
the anesthesiologist goes home in 30 minutes. If you want an epidural, you really need to do it now. Okay, well, the epidural, we already talked about the risks with epidurals. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that you're on your way to a snowball of intervention. Now, does it always end in, a, in an emergency C-section? No. But does your risk go up? Yeah. As well as a host of other things. You're more, um, you're at a higher risk of tearing with a, mm-hmm. an epidural, um, higher risk of forceps or vacuum delivery, assisted delivery with an epidural. There's a ton of risks involved as well as to your baby. Babies are sleepier after epidurals. They don't latch as well. Um, breastfeeding can be harder. These are not things that the nurse says, okay, now I know you said you want an epidural, but let me just tell you, there is a risk that, you know, baby might not latch as well after they'll be really sleepy. They, you know, might not respond well uh, after an epidural. You're more likely to tear with an epidural. You're more likely to go for a C-section with an epidural. You're more likely to fail to progress with an epidural. No, that's not the conversation that's happening, at least in in my anecdotal experience. That's so interesting. And it's interesting the the usage of, of all of the things of the snowball effect, like you're saying, just it's so interesting that once one thing is pushed so hard on you to the point where the mom you know, exasperated already. She's already in pain, whether you're using medicine or not, it's a painful process that your body is absolutely prepared for, but it's painful nonetheless. Um, she's already, you know, in the mindset of, okay, like let's, let's get this baby out of here. You know, I I know a lot of women by, by week 38, they're like, okay, (laughs) come on, baby, let's go. Let's get this. I got there out of me. Yeah, I have that because you're uncomfortable. And at some point um, when you're that exasperated, and especially if it's your first pregnancy, just thinking, okay, I will do whatever it takes. If that anesthesiologist is coming home in 30 minutes, get him in here right now so that he can he can get this started for me. Um, It's just it's so interesting, just the, the process of how things work in the hospital and how we should be advocating for our patients. But in what way are we advocating for the patients? Are we advocating for the patients to give us more money as a hospital or are we advocating for the patients themselves and for the betterment of our patients? Right. True advocation, you know? Yeah. And there's a, there's um, a host of implications that come with C-sections um, and with uh, Pitocin in general. So even if you do have a vaginal delivery, if you have Pitocin, um, studies are coming out that, show a correlation of Pitocin and difficulty latching and breastfeeding for the first couple of weeks. What happens is your body gets this synthetic oxytocin and it can kind of turn off um, that receptor in your brain to make oxytocin. Well, when you don't have enough oxytocin, your breastfeeding is not going to go well. Oxytocin is the fueling hormone for breastfeeding. It's what makes you produce milk. It's what makes your baby respond well during breastfeeding and makes them want to latch. There's all sorts of things going on with Montgomery glands on your nipples and areolas that are facilitated by oxytocin. Well, when you have Pitocin, you you don't make as much oxytocin because you already have the synthetic one. So you've tricked your body into thinking that you already have it. Okay. I don't know a single mom who had Pitocin who knew that there was a risk for struggling to to breastfeed if that was important to them. I go to church with a woman who breastfed all all two, both of her children, she had a third, um, had 
both of her first children naturally without Pitocin. Her third, they induced her because she wasn't progressing fast enough. So she had the Pitocin and baby wasn't able to latch right away. And she had to pump and was only making about an ounce of breast milk a day. Um, Babies need a lot more than that. So she had to supplement with formula. Well, that caused severe postpartum depression for her because she thought, I'm supposed to be able to feed my baby. What kind of mother am I? that I can't feed my baby. Now that's not true. Um, She's a great mother that has no effect on what kind of mother she is. But if the nurse might have told her, hey, there's some risks associated with Pitocin. We really need to give this, even if it's necessary, because there are times when it's necessary. You know, you need this Pitocin, but just know if baby has trouble latching, it's not your fault. it's because of this Pitocin. She wasn't told that. So she went through months of severe postpartum depression because she thought that she couldn't feed her baby. And she had no idea the reason. Well, likely it was because she had Pitocin. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about that with women. They don't know the risks about all of these interventions. That's so interesting because, I mean, this whole time we've been talking about the process of birthing a child in a hospital and the process of birthing a child and the months leading up to it. But then thinking, I mean, motherhood doesn't stop at birth. And I think that's something that is something that's not really thought about very often, especially when women get pregnant is yes, you have the birth process. And once you birth your baby, that is an incredible, amazing, just wonderful process. But then there's also things that come after. And especially the first, you know, couple of weeks, first couple of months, getting used to having this baby around you and taking care of a little human. Um, yeah, that's just so, so interesting. The the other side of it with these medical interventions, um, the effects that it has. And again, are we really advocating for our patients and for yeah. the moms and families yeah. that are being created? Are we really advocating for their best interest Yeah, by telling them exactly what you said? Hey, it's not your fault at yeah, all right. if this happens right. and it doesn't make you a bad mom. I wanted to mention one more um risk as far as c-sections as far as the aftermath go you will find this incredibly interesting because i know you um there are studies coming (laughs) out now we've just started to look at um at this uh but babies who are born by c-section are showing to have a 20 percent higher risk of type 1 diabetes asthma Hmm. celiac disease tons of non-communicable diseases 20% higher risk. And the reason that we're thinking that that's happening is because with a C-section, you are missing a very important bacterial seeding that happens through vaginal delivery. Mm. So when your baby is born through your birth canal, that is the first introduction that they have to any bacteria, very good bacteria that gets Mm -hmm. in their gut. When you do skin to skin with your baby, They pick up all of the bacteria that's on your skin. So we have way more microbes on us than we even have human cells. Um, And this first seeding that happens through a vaginal delivery is so important to the establishment of the immune system um, and for all of the good bacteria that this baby is going to need, which um, is huge as far as uh, your genes, your genetics, your immune system goes. And we're missing that with a C-section. There's a doctor in Brazil that's doing um, vaginal swabbing um, to place on newborns when they've had 
a C-section and they're showing vast improvements in their immune system, even really short term. So that's, that's just a long-term effect. When we take away this natural process again, what are the really long-term effects? What are we wiping out of future generations as far as, I mean, we're such a sick population. The entire human population is so sick and we're more medically advanced than we ever have been before. There's got to be a reason for it. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. So we are going to go ahead and get into a second episode in the following week with Kenan's birth story, um, her story with her midwife, her doula, and all of the things that came with an unmedicated birth. And we're going to get into that next week. But before we end this episode, I do have one more question for you, Kenan. What is some advice or encouragement that you would give to women who want to get pregnant or women who currently are pregnant that want to get into the crunchy mom lifestyle and unmedicated birth and just kind of staying away from hospitals in light of their research and what we've talked about today? Yeah, definitely. I think the main thing that I want women to walk away with is um, that you don't need to be rescued from childbirth. There's a documentary called The Business of Being Born, and I'm, I'll have Hannah link it in the show notes because it's incredible, and I, I would say start with that. Um, that'll that'll get you down a rabbit hole for sure if you're interested at all in this, but there's a, a quote in there that I just love, um, and the woman says, essentially, this is not your time to be rescued by a knight in shining armor. This is your time to face your darkest moment and to lay victory to it so that you can have the confidence to lay victory to motherhood as well. There are so many reasons to go the midwifery route. The truth is you're going to be affected tremendously by your birth one way or another, whether you like it or not. It very easily can be something that um, happened to you that you didn't just experience, but something really traumatic that happened to you really easily without even trying, you know? Um, Trauma can happen so easily in childbirth because it's such a vulnerable time in a woman's life. So she can either feel like she's not being heard, she's not being understood, she's not being listened to. She feels like a lab rat, that people are just running in and out, taking vitals from her, and she's just left alone like a science experiment. It can be physically scarring, emotionally, mentally scarring, or, and this is the kind of the next little teaser so that you can be excited for the next podcast, but it can be the most empowering, most amazing, most incredible experience of your entire life. And I, I have firsthand experience of that. So that, that, that would be what I would say to women is uh, you've got this and you can get out of the hospital if you want to. I love that. That's encouraging to hopefully everybody that's definitely encouraging to me too i learned a lot from you this episode ken and i really appreciate you being on oh i'm so glad thank you so much for the opportunity to kind of stand on my soapbox and uh not have someone's eyes glaze over in front of me while i get on it (laughs) well this is something that i'm wildly interested in and i really appreciate you i respect you for everything that you have said and also all the research that you've done and all that you've done with an unmedicated birth and your stance in the world with everything that you're sharing on social media and your stance that's so against the grain of what the world is saying. I really appreciate everything that you do, your worldview and all of that. So yeah, everybody look forward to the next episode. Next week, we are going to be talking about midwives, doulas, unmedicated birth, really diving into Kenan's birth story. And I'm really excited to get this out there because 
Kenan is one of the most wildly inspiring people I've ever met personally. And hopefully you guys can get a little bit of a glimpse into that during this episode and the last episode, just how powerful she really is in her circle. So thank you again for being on this episode and this podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody. Um, We will go ahead and shout out Kenan right now. Where can they find you? Uh, My personal account on Instagram, which is where I mainly talk about um, kind of doula work and birth stuff, unmedicated stuff, my issues with hospitals is the Kennedy woman. Yeah, that's my that's my Instagram. And that will be linked down below for anybody who wants to go and learn more about everything that we're talking about. Okay, thank you again for joining me on this episode. Thank you everybody listening and watching and we will see you next week.